back to the podcast. This is episode number 45 and I'm a little bit groggy today. Uh, we've got a new baby in the house. She's three weeks old and she has just blown my heart wide open. And at the same time, I'm a bit sleep deprived today. So let's see how this introduction goes. Uh, today we're talking with Dan Siegel and I love Dan's work. He's one of the founders, the creators of the field of interpersonal neurobiology. That's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to discuss the wheel of awareness in particular. Um, You imagine a wheel and you've got the hub in the middle. The hub represents the experience of awareness, knowing itself. And then the rim contains all the points of anything we can become aware of, which is known to us. And we can then send our attention out to the rim to put our attention on one point or another in this rim and in this way the the wheel of awareness is a visual metaphor for the integration of consciousness as we differentiate different elements on the rim and and that's what we're going to be discussing today why is that so important in growth in change and in well-being so dan will talk about how consciousness is needed for change and the importance of integration and well-being You know, he's going to say bold things in this interview that we've fundamentally, we've got our sense of identity wrong. And he articulates his expanded sense of self, drawing on quantum physics, uh, comparing it with Newtonian physics to make his point. So uh, you can go to his website. He mentions this and you can find the wheel of awareness. He's going to be teaching on how you can use the wheel of awareness in coaching in the neuroscience of change. He's going to be leading two sessions on that. I'm really excited about that. So if you're still interested in joining that, the, the, the program's all about how do you apply the latest thinking and insights from neuroscience in your coaching. If you want to know more about that, you can head to coachesrising.com forward slash neuroscience of change. And registration is open until 1st of October. Just a few more things about Dan. Uh, prolific author. Check out his books, Mindsight, which is a great book, The New Science of Personal Transformation. Uh, Just been reading Awareness, which is also a really great book. He's written a lot of books about children, the whole brain child, uh, no drama, discipline, the whole brain brain way to calm chaos. Uh, He's also traveling the world teaching. We talk about how he's been working with members of parliament in this interview. He's he's, uh, lectured for the King of Thailand, Pope John Paul II, his Holiness the Dalai Lama at Google University and many more places like that. As usual, if you want to share this podcast, I'd be very grateful. I just want as many coaches and practitioners to benefit from it as possible. Whew. All right. I could definitely feel my fogginess there, but I, th- I think that all made sense. So let's dive in. Dan, so good to be with you today. How's things? Great to be here with you. It's they're doing great. They're doing well. How are you today? I'm I'm very good, thanks. I've got my two week old daughter downstairs, and oh, beautiful! Blown my heart wide open, and I'm actually feeling pretty energized as well. So, um, yeah, I'm feeling good for this conversation. Fantastic. Well, great to be here with you. Mm. Two week old daughter. Wow. Yeah. Is this is she your first? She's my first and my partner's second. Yeah. So we have a twelve. Oh, wow. I have a twelve year old. Uh, in the house as well yeah yeah fantastic congratulations thanks uh so i want to talk to you about your work today and um you know interpersonal neurobiology and and its implications for coaching 
I'd love to just begin by maybe uh, putting two questions together and seeing where you take that, which is, well, maybe you could introduce to people who don't know your work what interpersonal neurobiology is, but maybe you could put it in the context of why you think it's so important in these times. You know, for me, it just seems like we are right in the mix these days. We're going through huge shifts in the world. And, um, you know, I think, you know, these different fields like your own are, are, are have important keys to helping us navigate these times. So, um, yeah, maybe you could take that where you take it. Absolutely. Well, Joel, thanks for the, the question. You know, the field of interpersonal neurobiology, that phrase uh, is um, a term that I made up years ago for this work I was doing with colleagues that said, what would happen if we tried to really think deeply about our human lives and life on earth. Uh, and what we did was, what I did in 1992, was to bring together 40 representatives from different sciences. And in the meeting of those scientists, there were mathematicians and physicists and people from various forms of um, you know, the hard sciences like chemistry and biology, including neuroscience. And we have people in psychology and linguistics and sociology and anthropology and, and others as well. Um, and we asked the question, you know, what is the human mind and how does it relate to the human brain? And it's a long, <laughs> excuse me, story, but the short version of the story is by finding a bridge across those disciplines and looking for what later on E.O. Wilson would call consilience, this word means common discoveries that are discovered independently from independent pursuits of knowledge, like these different disciplines of science. What emerged was a view that wasn't contained in any of the single disciplines, but it started to be a kind of synergistic bringing together of, for example, the analogy would be the, the wisdom of the blind men and the elephant. You began to see the whole elephant, even though any given discipline might study the toes or the knees or the tail or the ears or the trunk or the tusks. So everyone had a very important, insightful piece of perspective, all good. But to get the whole picture, it was helpful to bring these individual blind men together, you know, into one framework. And... You know, I didn't know what to call it. So people ask me, what's this thing you're doing with this group that at that time had met for four and a half years um, that I was the whatever the group kind of facilitator. I was like the party planner, um, you know, so I just said, oh, I think we could call it interpersonal neurobiology. And I, I, I made up that term because the group was really focusing on the inter, like what was happening in our interconnectedness the personal, meaning you do have a kind of an inner subjective aspect to life, like consciousness or what you feel or memory or narrative, stuff like that. So interpersonal seemed like a good word. And in those days, it was the decade of the brain. Everyone was interested in neuroscience. So I just, and I'm a biologist by training, so I just called it neurobiology. So interpersonal neurobiology had a kind of nice cadence to it. So I named that there, and that was actually just before the field of social neuroscience 
was created as a division of neuroscience, which is a division of biology. So in retrospect, if I could name it something else, I would, because people often confuse interpersonal neurobiology with social neuroscience because they sound the same. But social neuroscience is done through the discipline of neuroscience, which is a branch of biology. And that's all beautiful. I love it. And interpersonal neurobiology is not that. It is, let's look at neuroscience and all its different divisions, affective neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience, social neuroscience. Let's look at things related to all fields of biology, like genetics. Let's look at things that are exploring the deep structures within biological systems like chemistry. Or if you're going to look at the molecules of chemistry, you want to look at the way these things are governed by the laws of physics. And then you want to understand math. And then you get to saying, well, what's understanding anything? Well, it's the mind. So then you go, okay, well, let's bring in psychology. And then what do we do in groups? Well, sociology and how do we speak to each other? Linguistics and how do we create cultures of meaning? That's anthropology. So just as a foundation, <laughs> excuse me, as a foundation where we start, you've got, you know, all these different disciplines that usually don't speak to each other. And if you read E.O. Wilson's book, the name of which is Consilience, you'll see universities tend not to encourage this kind of cross-disciplinary communication or collaboration. So interpersonal neurobiology ultimately was removed from the university setting. Um, and, you know, I wrote a book about it called The Developing Mind. Um, I was asked to write a whole series of books or edit that series. So I'm the founding editor for the Norton series on interpersonal neurobiology, which now has, I don't know, I think it's over 75 textbooks that I've overseen the publication of. And it's a whole like field uh, informing things like mental health, um, education, parenting, coaching, contemplative practice, organizational functioning. Um, even governments have me come and talk about the implications of interpersonal neurobiology for how you make federal law, for example. Um, so it's been a fascinating ride this quarter of a century to kind of try to stay with a whole elephant view of reality. Um, it, it doesn't make you particularly friends with anyone who's in a single discipline who uh, may be devoted only to their particular part of the elephant. But um, we've seen the, the positive aspects of looking at this consilient view. Uh, and, um, and so that's what interpersonal neurobiology is. And for coaches, it's, for example, something that can deeply inform the foundations of what you do. And then your methodology for coaching can incorporate the principles of consilience from interpersonal neurobiology. And those, you know, we haven't mentioned what those are, but we can go into those, Joel, and talk about them in depth. Hmm. Yeah. And um, do you find that more than ever there's a relevance for this, uh, you know, for interpersonal neurobiology and particularly because of this consilient approach you've taken, um, you know, th th this kind of synergistic approach you've taken where consilience has arisen. Do you find more than ever now that, that you know, um, in these times there's a relevance for it and, and um, it's being applied in more and more places? I think the answer is uh, a qualified yes, meaning in terms of your last part of the question, is it being applied? I hope so, but I don't, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, 
in the first part of the question would be the resounding yes. You know, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, I was asked to go teach um, at a parliament in another country. Uh, and um, so there's a practice where we take some of the conciliant views of interpersonal neurobiology and apply them to uh, consciousness and the nature of the mind. And, um, and in doing so, I was able to do this practice called the wheel of awareness where you, you this is gonna make sense because we haven't talked about the details, but you basically take one of the conciliant findings from interpersonal neurobiology, which I'll just abbreviate I, P, and B for short, is that you take that principle that health is based on a process called integration. And integration is very clearly defined in this perspective as the differentiation of aspects of a system. Like if the system is this podcast, it would be you're differentiated from me. We're allowed to be different. Our differences are not just tolerated, but actually we thrive because of the differences. And then we link together. And in terms of this podcast, we communicate with each other. We hear each other clearly. Um, in this case, we're also seeing each other for the video part. And those patterns of basically energy and information resonate with one another. So there's a we that's created in the linkage because we've allowed the individual parts to retain their differentiated nature. You don't feel forced to be me. I don't feel forced to be you. You don't have to conform to my beliefs. I don't have to conform to your beliefs. We respect each other's differences and we come together in a linked we. That we would call an integrated experience. And it has these qualities of incredible energy. It's uh, in English, it, it can be spelled out with the acronym FACES. It's flexible, it's adaptive. It's the mathematical term is coherent, meaning it's resilient over time. It's energized and it's stable. So F-A-C-E-S, flexible, adaptive coherent, energized, and stable is what arises when energy and information flow in what's called a complex system is achieving this state of integration. It's differentiating and linking. Okay, the key thing there is you don't lose the differentiated nature as you link. So there's some really interesting things that come from math, and that's a whole long discussion you can see in a book called Mind um, that kind of shows the origin of the thinking of, of this kind of consilient approach to understanding reality. Um, but that's the first consilient finding. The second consilient finding is when you study different approaches to change like coaching, um, education, uh, psychotherapy, uh, parenting, things like that. Each one of those four, for example, require that the people involved in the change experience uh, are conscious. So for myself, as both a parent and an educator, as well as a therapist, I just was intrigued and an interpersonal neurobiology person, I was intrigued like, is consciousness needed for change? And it looks like that's true. So for intentional change, for growth in a positive direction, we need this thing called consciousness. So that was just an interesting observation across these different disciplines. So if you take that second consilient finding, conscious needed for change. And the first one, integration is the basis of health. And you bring them together. 
what you get is the question, could we integrate consciousness? And there's a table just through this wall right here, which um, has a center uh, glass uh, you know, part to it and a wooden outer rim. So I would take my patients up from the, the couch or the chair and say, hey, come on, let's integrate consciousness. And they go, what are you talking about? I said, no, 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 you know, this integration looks like it's health. Consciousness looks like it's needed for change. So if you want to change towards health, let's integrate consciousness. And they go, okay, whatever. You know, and so I said, you know, consciousness is the experience of knowing. So if I say, hello, Joel, you know, do you know I said hello? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's two things happening there that can be differentiated from each other. There's the knowing I said, hello, Joel. Then there's the details of what you know of that you can call a known. So there's a knowing and then there's the known. Mm. In this case, it's sound. Or if you're reading in a book, it would be light. Or if I were holding your hand and saying, good morning, Joel, or hello, Joel, you know, you'd feel the touch of my, my skin against your skin. So there's lots of patterns of energy that come in different forms, light, sound, touch, that are what we're talking about. It's not a mystery. It's, we live in a world of energy forms. Um, and so in this moment, then, what we're saying is that the experience of consciousness has two components. It has the knowing, which we're going to put in the hub of this table. Uh, and on the rim of the table, we put all the knowns, which you can divide into four segments. You know, the first segment would be our five senses. We bring in energy from outside the body, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. Then we move this spoke of attention, which is like something holding up the table. We move it over to the next segment, which is the interior sensations of the body, muscles and bones, genitals and internal organs like the intestines, lungs, heart. Um, then we move the spoke over to the third segment, which is um, this uh, experience of mental life, like emotions, thoughts, and memories. Then we move the spoke over to the fourth segment, which is our relational connections. And in an advanced step, you even bend the spoke around or get rid of the spoke and just drop into the, no one wanted to call it the center of the table. So instead of a table of consciousness, we call it the wheel of awareness. And the center of the wheel is a hub. So you have the hub, the rim, and the, the, the spoke. And so here you would then take the um, hub and be the metaphoric place for knowing the rim of the knowns and the spoke is the focus of attention, which directs energy flow. Anyway, I started doing this with my patients. They started getting better. I started doing this in with my students who are therapists. They started finding it useful. Their clients got better, started doing it in workshops and people have this tremendous response. We put it up on our website. We've had lots and lots and lots of people stream it. We give it away for free. And then I did it in this parliament and this is the lead up to the whole story. And they were having all sorts of trouble knowing how to work out some of the federal legislation they were trying to pass. Had everybody do the wheel of awareness. When they drop out of the rim and into the hub, we then um, have a kind of a transformation of identity in many ways. And as one of the parliamentarians who didn't want to speak publicly, who came to me privately and said, I need to tell you what happened. I said, what happened? And he goes, you know, I didn't want to say this out loud because they think I was weak, but basically, you know, I felt, and he says it very slowly with a lot of tears, I've never felt so much love and so much connection to everyone 
and everything when I was in that pure hub experience. And having done this with 10,000 people and recording it uh, with all those people and doing a survey that extended further to 47,000 people now in person, it's been um, quite consistent. Everyone's unique, of course, but the consistent patterns where doing an integration of consciousness practice transforms people to go from a separate, isolated self to realizing the interconnected nature of life, to feel the reality that love is a kind of substance of the universe. And people then change the way they conduct themselves as parents, as teachers, as coaches, as parliamentarians. Um, and even when I work in the ecosystem world of you know, people involved in climate uh, policy in governments and, and organizations, you know, I ask why they have become. We do the wheel and we talk about the general nature that in modern culture, we've been kind of uh, trained to think we're separate from one another, uh, separate from nature, when in fact, there's a deeper reality that you get at in the hub of this wheel, which reveals the reality of interconnection. And I think that's the pathway we need to go for climate change issues is not just scaring people, that has not worked, not just informing them, that hasn't worked, my colleagues in that field tell me, but transforming them by integrating identity. And so here you can see where integration for the individual is the base of health, but even at the level of uh, climate change issues, when the system of the ecological life on earth is not differentiated and linked, you tend to go to either chaos or rigidity, which is a prediction from mathematics. Um, and we can see it in an individual, we can see it in a couple, we can see it in a family, we can see it in a school, we can see it in an organization, we can see it in a nation. I think we can also apply this interpersonal neurobiology perspective to the whole planet. And you could say, well, what's not integrated? Well, human beings are too differentiated on earth. We act as if we are not a part of the whole system. That excessive differentiation is blocking integration and you see this ensuing destruction of species on earth, the destruction of the planet, which is the chaos and the rigidity that arise when you're not integrated in that faces flow of harmony. So the answer to you, Joel, is I, I do think these principles allow us to see deeply into what health is, whether you're looking at the system of life on earth or life in your skin encased body called you, you know, we have this opportunity to apply these concilian principles in a way that's very practical and based on science and actually can be very effective at making change. Well, that was just an exceptionally exquisite kind of answer to the question. And you took us right down that path to uh, such a, a deep place for me. And I, um, yeah, you know, like I, I see that in the clients I, I work with in the, in the coaching community at large, I think, um, who are working with leaders and people in the world um, and, and how important that kind of transformation of identity that you're talking about that people experience as they begin to, um, you know, integrate these different aspects of the wheel and then, um, and then experience themselves as, as the hub. Um, for me, I think is, 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 um, is a, an exquisite way of naming that, that, that shift that, that is being required of us 
um, in these times, you know, and um, so many implications, you know, from um, how do we live in complexity? I think you just named that, you know, so, so um, how is it that we can be with our clients in the moment, in the complexity of who they are, you know, and how can we help them to be in the complexity of their lives and how can we be together in the complexity of, of the world, you know? So, um, exactly. And, and I think, um, it's like, I, you know, when I think about people who do meditation and stuff, I think sometimes the, the, the missing piece is maybe the, the linkaging of, of parts, you know, um, in a way that that's very connecting and human, not just a, um, maybe a disidentifying or bypassing away from, um, just being human, but, um, and that's what I like about what you're talking about. There's, there's, there's a transformation in identity, but it's also, you know, has this love within it, you know, which is a love of what's here and linkaging the parts. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's so beautifully said, Joel, you know, the, the opportunity, I think that um, all of us have together. Uh, and I guess it's, it's, it's a deep hope um, that, um, th that I have anyway for, for interpersonal neurobiology as a um, kind of, in a sense, it's a discipline neutral space of knowledge because we say if you are a disciplined way of studying the nature of reality, you are welcome. Now that could be you're a musician, it could mean you're a poet, it could mean you study literature, history, you study political science. It could be, you know, you're working in the contemplative traditions of meditation or spiritual work, or even, even the formal study of religion, right? Where it's done with the word study, meaning you want to have an objective way of in a disciplined manner, uh, exploring something. So I used to do, uh, deep collaborations with a, a beautiful, um, Catholic priest named John O'Donohue. And John and I would teach together, and and his work has absolutely informed interpersonal neurobiology. His body sadly died about a dozen years ago, almost now. And um, you know, uh, his ideas haven't died, and his books still exist. And you know, I'm still working on a project that we were doing together, actually. And um, but the point there is, he was not only a, a, um, a Catholic priest. Uh, a former Catholic priest, but he um, was a poet, a philosopher, and a mystic. He was an Irish mystic. And, uh, and Gaelic mysticism was something he would study a lot. And I would ask John, I said, well, what, what does it really mean to be a mystic? Because it sounds like, oh, you're not really doing something disciplined. But anyone who knew John knew he was one of the most disciplined minds, scholars you could find. And he said, look, a mystic is simply someone who believes in the reality of the invisible. And I said to John, who was not trained at all in science, I said, you know, a true scientist would realize that the sensory apparatus we have in the human body, and even the gadgets we create that can help us measure and, and monitor things beyond what our senses can do, realize in a very humble way that in the invisible is real. And so to act like it isn't is actually not very scientific. And he, he was really uh, excited about that, that to think a true scientist is actually also a mystic, someone who believes in the reality of the invisible. So then you get a very humble and joining way where you say, let's bring in mystics and see what they have to say. Let's read 
poetry, not just by John O'Donohue and Diane Ackerman, another colleague of ours, but by Rumi, you know, and let's, let's see if there's consilience. Let's not, let's not buy into anything, but if when we do our consilience approach and say, you know, does math and physics and chemistry and biology and psychology and sociology and linguistics and anthropology and all these other fields, do they meet with mysticism and poetry and music? I was just at a meeting last night on, uh, by Dan Levitan on, um, you know, this is your brain on music. And so much of what he said, although he, he doesn't have the frame of interpersonal neurobiology, but as an interpersonal neurobiologist sitting in the audience, you know, I could interpret lots of the amazing, beautiful, fantastic discoveries he's done through the lens of IPNB and, and widened the application of his beautiful work to include culture and include how we act in groups and include relationships between parents and children and look at the musicality as Colwyn Trevarthen does of our connections with each other. And um, so IPNB invites us to say, where are we at in the world? How do we understand this deep way? And then to say, how do we detect the suffering in the world as prolonged chaos and rigidity, and then do actions, skillful, thoughtful actions that try to bring us from states of non-integration to integration. And one we've been talking about is what the self is, you know, and I think one of the hidden toxins of contemporary human life is the view, it's not in every culture, but it's in modern society, that the, the self, that word S-E-L-F is separate. And when you realize that the way the mind functions for information processing is a linguistic symbol is like the tip of an iceberg. And then just beneath it, beneath the surface of the water is um, a concept. And then beneath the concept is a presumed division of the world we call a category. and so self reveals a concept that there's some kind of source of agency that we call I or me that is revealing a belief in a category of there's you and there's me, there's self and other, you know, that phrase, which I try in every way I can to avoid. Um, and then returning back up to the concept of self, you go, well, of course there's a self, you know, you're born in a body and that's who you are. And then you emerge into the world of self and your parents called you Joel and mine called me Danny. And, you know, and you want to get good grades in your school and you want to have friends and that come to your birthday party. And, and then nowadays with social media, you want to make sure you have lots of likes and all this kind of stuff for your selfhood. And while it seems really natural and, there's even a lot of reason to believe that having that in a coherent way is really healthy, that if that's the total definition of self, we're doomed. And that part of an IPNB approach to reality is to say that linguistic symbol of self as only being defined, underscore only being defined um, as what happens inside your skin in case body, or even worse, what happens in your skull in case brain, um, which are common views. Yourself is in your brain in your head, or yourself is only in your body, rather than with people around you, or people who are not like you, or all of humanity, or all of nature. That's truly where the self exists. And that reality of interconnection 
is something I think that the world is waiting for humanity to wake up to in order to take the very small window of time we have left to carry out the human drama with a very different narrative than what we've been carrying it out. And, you know, in the last, whatever, 200 years or maybe less, the human narrative has been the self is in your body and true happiness comes from getting as much stuff for this bodily self as possible, acquisition, 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 which requires production, 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 and destruction, destruction, destruction. And the research is clear, the more material stuff you have after a minimum to just avoid disaster and not being able to survive, it doesn't make you happier. But then we're on a hedonic treadmill where you go, well, I have a hundred units of stuff, I'm not very happy. The equation is more stuff, more happiness, maybe I just don't have enough stuff. So now I get a thousand units of stuff. Ooh, 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 okay, I got my thousand, but I don't feel very happy or fulfilled or meaningful. Oh my gosh, what should I do? Well, maybe I need 10,000 units. Oh yeah, let me get the 10,000. Now I rush up running, 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 running. running. I've got my 10,000 units up. Oh my God, I'm still miserable. Well, now I better figure out some way to get them, you know, 100,000 units of stuff. So now I run a big thing that produces more things that can then convince people that the thing they need are to buy the things that I'm selling so I can get my million units of stuff. So if you buy my million units, maybe I'll finally be happy. And now you're buying the stuff, but you're not happy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that has been the narrative of modern society. And we're about to end life on earth because of that narrative. And it actually is a false narrative, meaning it's a false equation. Stuff does not make you happy. Relationships make you happy. Relationships with one another as human beings and relationships with nature. And so if you do that, that doesn't produce carbon dioxide. That isn't gonna destroy the climate to have loving relationships with one another and with nature. So you go, whoa, but that doesn't make you money. Exactly. So this is where the narrative has to change. And it's going to take a, what, what uh, Arthur Zions taught me about, but I think a lot of people use this term, um, the phrase pervasive leadership, where every one of us can be a leader. Anyone listening to this podcast is empowered to be a leader to say, you want an integrated self. What's an integrated self? Yes, you have a body. Enjoy the body exercise your body, keep the body flexible, feed the body well, sleep the body so you get really healthy body stuff going on. That's all great. Know the history of this body, both in the lifetime of this body being born and from generations before. Great. Let's call that the inner self, right? So that's I or me. But you want to integrate it with another facet of the self that's equally real, only we usually don't talk about it, which is the relational self. And this is the we or us. So integration requires we have the differentiated components, but then link them without losing their differentiated nature. Well, how do you do that? You don't want to go from individualistic to collectivistic. That's not what we're asking for. You want to have an integrated identity. So it's a me plus a we. And the funny term I like to say is we in English, M-W-E. And what's been so fascinating is when people go, whoa, we? And I go, yeah, that's how we need to raise your daughter. She needs to be raised that there's an inner, what's her name? Esme. 
Esme, yeah. there's an inner Esme and there's an inter Esme. Mm. And they're both herself. Mm. They're both herself. They're both Esme. The inner Esme should know how she feels. She should be in touch with her body. She should be able to express her emotions. She should know to sleep well and eat well and exercise and move around a lot and not just sit down. And, you know, she should know how to take care of that beautiful, wonderful body of hers. That's an inner Esme. But there's also an inter Esme where she is her friends. She is her family. She is the people who are not like her that she's confused by. She is a fundamental part of all of humanity. She is the tree in front of her. She's the river, she's the sky. And that inter aspect of Esme is differentiated from the inner aspect, sure, but they're both who she is. Now, Joel, if you can raise her that way, and if we start raising the next generation that way, they're gonna have a whole different way of living on the planet. Now, once we do that for parents, we need to work with teachers, working in the MUI framework. Then we're working with teachers. That's all great. So the next generation will happen. We don't have enough time to wait for Esme to become, you know, 30 years old. We just don't. So we adults have to realize, yes, we need to work with the youth. Totally. And we must, must, must work with the adults who are running the world. And that's each one of us. Each one of us is running the world and in people, and this is for coaches to know, who are in positions of executive leadership. If we continue with the old narrative, Earth as a living being will no longer exist for Esme. Mm -hmm. And you just look at any little kid running around, and my kids are grown out, and I still feel it for them as 25 and 30 year old. But, you know, when you feel the limited future that science has now demonstrated is there if we don't change the human narrative. You feel compelled for these next dozen years or so that we have to change things around, to do everything in your power, to say, what's the transformation we need? The transformation is from the inside out. It's integrating consciousness, getting in touch with the hub of that wheel, realizing, oh my gosh, I was given a lie. I was told who I am is just this body, that's not true. I'm, yes, this body, the inner me, and I'm also the inter-we. And as a we, if we turn this around on the planet, we are perfectly capable of such creative, collaborative work. We can make this work for Esme and all of her peers. Mm -hmm. That's what wakes me up every morning with both um, fear and with incredible passion. You know, when I think, what am I doing today? Like talking to you, it's if I can get a little teeny notion from interpersonal neurobiology out about the important need to do this with fun, to do this with love, to do this with a sense of hope. My daughter's an environmental science. She's one of my biggest teachers. Um, and she says, look, this is how you live a meaningful life. You look at what's the meaningful thing going on. Of course, it's going to be stressful because anything that's meaningful is at play is create stress. But you turn that into positive stress. You say, yes. This is important, let's go for it. And she, she says, look, if it doesn't work, okay, it doesn't work. But when you do it, it could work. And at least you tried everything you can. That's the message for humanity, you know? And um, yeah, so I'm, I, I see applications of this in everything going on in the world. I, I wanna ask you, well, first of all, like I'm, I'm in touch with 
the we that's here right now, you know, and um, how that's informing me. Um, but but the, the the quality of that, you know, the sense of aliveness and energy that I feel in connection with you, the passion and um, expanded sense of possibility. And um, uh, I, I want to ask you about, you know, how do you work with people to help create this shift in identity that you're talking about? You've mentioned the wheel of awareness. And, you know, I just want to kind of add a footnote to that question, which is it almost feels like we're being invited, invited into different modes of perception uh, in a way and uh, modes of awareness, you know, like no longer relying purely on um, a kind of abstracted, uh, separate kind of sense of self with an abstracting mind, you know, that kind of separates itself from things, but there's a kind of coming back in and, 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 and feeling the direct perception and contact with, um, with, you know, um, with our environment, with our relationships. Um, so I wonder if you could just tell us, how do you help people make this shift? You know, like if we can make this last part of the podcast kind of practical for the coaches listening too. Yeah. Well, it's a great question, Joel. I, 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 I guess, first of all, just to acknowledge, I feel the same thing with the, the we connection between you and me right here. Mm-hmm. And, and I hope people listening, you know, will feel the energy of that. And also the, um, uh, I don't know how to say this exactly, but it's kind of like, you know, if these interpersonal neurobiology consilient views do invite a shift in perception, like you're saying, to enter a different mode of being aware. Um, it's, I, I want to, this is kind of weird to say this, but it's not like it's a fancy thing. That is, it's a really important thing, but it's available to everyone. This isn't just some kind of, you know, weird, you know, intellectualization or, you know, elitist thing of transforming conscious. No, this is actually, at least in my experience with doing this with so many people over these years, you know, it's almost like a, a um, it's almost like freeing the human mind from a kind of trap or prison that human culture has um, inadvertently uh, placed on the human mind itself. And what's that prison? It has to do with the four-letter word self. Seeing the self, who you are, your identity, as only in your skin and case body is in its limited view. Of course, you have a body, but when you only look at the self as in the body, it is false. It is, you could call that a lie or even worse, it's a toxic lie. It's a fatal lie. And it's a killing individuals, making them depressed, anxious, sometimes suicidal. Um, when people get liberated from the lie, and it can happen pretty rapidly, that liberation, and this is why, you know, the wheel of awareness is just so, you know, I'm kind of struck every time you can get someone who's never meditated before in their life, never been to therapy, never thought about these things. They do a 25 minute practice like the wheel, like that parliamentarian or other people, many people, you know, say, oh my God, what just happened? I, I realize who I am is not just this body. In fact, who I am is, you know, the people around me, who I am is the tree there, who I am is that bird there, who I am is the clouds. And I'm also who I am, my identity 
people that existed before and life that existed before this body was conceived. And actually I can feel my identity as being people who will live 200 years from now. So I can get involved, let's say, in cleaning up the planet in a way that may take 200 years ultimately to transform. We need to work in the next dozen years really hard, but I'm gonna put my life into it because my life is not just this body's existence. Could, could, so like that example, you know, like could you guide us into that now? I mean, is it, is it like, as you mentioned people 200 years from now, you know, that, that evokes a response inside my body. Um, there's a feel of it, you know, I, I start to feel it in my awareness, you know, it's inside of me, my, um, not my awareness, but you know, uh, my experience. And so but anyway, I'm poorly attempting to explain, but perhaps you yeah. say, how, well, how would, how could we experience them being part of us? Right. So, uh, first of all, I invite everyone to go to the website and for free, just go to drdansiegel.com, D-R-D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L.com, go to resources, go do the wheel and see it for yourself. So it isn't just Joel and Dan, you know, telling you something, you experience it for yourself. That's the first thing. What I would say, Joel, that's so interesting is this. E.O. Wilson in a book called The Meaning of Human Existence says that humanity has a problem. One of its problems is that the sensory input it has relies on vision and hearing, and that gives us the illusion um, of separation. So biologically, we're vulnerable to misinterpreting our identity as separate. That's E.O. Wilson speaking. Number two, when you look at the study of physics, E.O. Wilson's a biologist, now we're going to go to physics, we now know that it's established that there are two realms of one reality we're in. And I've asked now literally 3,000 therapists and 3,000 techies, and 1% of both group were aware of this. So 99% of educated professionals did not know what I'm about to say. And yet this thing I'm about to say to you is the answer to your question. How do we actually move to feeling connected to people 200 years from now, to feeling connected to the trees and the creek and the waters and the sky. So here's what I'm gonna to say to you, and the wheel lets you do it as a practice, but here's the conceptual framework that for some people, I just say this and they go, whoa, I got that, that was a meditation, but I'm just gonna say it as a, as a scientific communication. Just like if you go swimming in the water, sometimes you do the breaststroke and you're underwater, sometimes you're above the water in the air realm, sometimes you're in the water realm. You know, we have two realms when you swim, air realm, water realm, different properties, exist in the air that exists in the water. So if I'm in a room, for example, and someone leaves the room, I don't even really know they left the room if they left quietly. The air doesn't have the quality where it shakes my skin and I know it. But if I'm in a bathtub, in, like in a hot tub, and I'm just meditating, whatever, and someone gets out of the bathtub, I feel them leaving the bathtub because water connects us. We know we're deeply interconnected in the water, much more than the air. Okay, that's just the analogy. Here's the reality of physics that tells us that there are two realms. And this is very condensed, and you'll see this in a book aware that goes through it in 100 pages, pretty much, but um, I'll just say it in a couple sentences. We know for 350 years that there are certain properties of large objects. Large objects are called macro for large states, and they're states of energy, basically, 
that when condensed is called matter. Anyway, these macrostates have properties that Isaac Newton figured out, and they act like nouns that are entities that are separated from each other, and they interact. Entities that are nouns that are separated from each other that interact is the macrostate world that Newton described. So the physics 350 years ago that he determined, which is still accurate, is called Newtonian physics because it's the classical thing used in physics. The synonym is classical physics. So classical Newtonian macrostate all are describing the same thing. Things are like nouns, noun-like entities that are separate from one another and that interact. Like your body is there, my body is here. It's a noun-like thing called a body. I've got a body, you've got a body, we're separate. Okay, we can communicate with each other, that's the interaction, but fundamentally we're separate, fine. A hundred years ago, more or less now, another branch of physics started looking at small things like photons or electrons, smaller than the macro states, so they're called micro for small states, small states of energy. Now, the way you describe a state of energy is a unit or quanta, and this is gonna sound weird, but a unit of energy, a quanta of energy, is a probability field, which we're not gonna get into that now. Read aware and you'll see a way it's very relevant for our lives. But these microstates have a whole different set of mathematical equations that determine that realm of microstates, how things interact. And this microstate world, there are no entities. There are no noun-like entities. Things are verb-like events. And these events massively interconnected. So what we're saying is you have two realms that have been established by science a month before AWARE came out last year. You'll see on the cover story of Scientific American, it says, when does the Newtonian realm meet the, the, you know, the quantum realm? These realms are real. In terms of humanity, I think what's happened is because we're born into a body, we come to have a sensory experience of the macrostate world, and then our minds are in part shaped by that macrostate world, and we come to believe that the self is a noun, an entity, when in fact, the mind is also quantum, and that is things are verb-like events that are massively interconnected. When you do the wheel of awareness, and this is where the 100 pages come in the book aware, when you do the wheel of awareness and drop into the hub, what many, 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 many people describe, including me, I do it every day, and this morning I had the experience, it was like, ah. You drop out of the macrostate experience of noun-like entity separation, and you move toward the verb-like event interconnectivity. And amazingly, and various physicists talk about this in different ways, but what human beings have named as time looks like it's the awareness of change. And change has a directionality that physicists call an arrow of time. An arrow has a point into it, right? So the directionality of change, like a Joel, if you and I crack an egg open, we can't uncrack the egg. It has a directionality of change. Egg, crack it open can't put it back together no matter what we do we cannot because an egg is a macro state and in the macro state newtonian classical physics world there is an arrow of time there's a directionality of change we just call it time our awareness of the arrow of time is what we simply call time here's the amazing thing 
if we leave the Newtonian classical macrostate world with the arrow of time and enter the quantum realm, there is no arrow of time. And it is fair to say from an experiential point of view, and people feel this when they do the wheel and drop into the hub, and I'm not getting into what the physics is that, but that's in the aware book. Um, when they drop into the hub, they enter the different realm and they feel the interconnected verb-like nature of being a self that's also a verb and then being connected to people 200 years from now is absolutely natural because you've entered the realm where there is no arrow of time. It's in a sense timeless. Some people maybe a little different experience that is eternity, but in any event, when you drop there, you realize interconnection and means across both what we call space and what we call time, the space time block, so that you start feeling that you are an interconnected part of the whole block across space and across time. So as you speak, you know, it reminds me of my meditation practice, uh, accessing what one of my teachers calls awake awareness in a sense where it's like, as you speak, the sound of your voice, there's no distance, you know, like there's no, there's no, it's not happening over there. It's, it's intimate. It's, it's, it's arising, um, within a kind of spaceless, uh, spacious knowingness. And, um, that, uh, you know, it reminds me of in my meditation practice where, where, you know, events, uh, you know, things can arise, particularizations can arise and ebb and fall away. But there's this great intimacy with everything that's that's arising, and yeah, there's skillful means that can come from that place when one is relaxed into that place. That there's a um, you know there's a kind of compassion and a wisdom that can arise, like a kind of spontaneous, unintentional, but a kind of spontaneous um, action which often has deep skillful means and inclusiveness to it. Absolutely. Well, in the in that last hundred pages that I keep on referring to in aware, it takes us from the subjective experience of awake awareness, like you're talking about this hub, um, into what the science of that might be. Right. And and we don't. I don't think we have time now to go into it. But I'll just say that there's a what ultimately you can call a plane of possibility, a generator of diversity that correlates with what physicists would call. Uh, the quantum vacuum or sea of potential and that actualizations arise from this plane. And after doing this with the 10,000 people before I did all the rest in the survey, it looks like there's reports from the wheel um, that the hub is a metaphor for the plane of possibility as uh, an equivalent of the quantum vacuum. And what that means is the generator of diversity, that all things arise from there. And the, the pattern that emerged from doing it with all these people systematically in the same way, and then recording the, recording the, recording the, result, the results, results um, is that three things seem to arise together, awareness, interconnection, and love. And this plane of possibility, the hub of the wheel, this awake awareness, I'll bet that your teacher talks about, you know, this would be the scientific view that this plane is the portal 
through which integration naturally arises. And integration made visible is kindness and compassion. It's skillful means, it's morality and ethics. So what we want to do is bring people into that hub as the practice. The mechanism, I think, is the plane of possibility. And the reason it's skillful means and wisdom that arise from there is because integration is the natural drive of, of living beings. We get all sorts of things that block that, that you'll see discussed in the aware book, but, but we want to release those blockages by dropping into the hub, dropping into the plane of possibility. And then in a way it's letting wisdom happen. It's letting skillful means happen. It's letting kindness and compassion happen. And that's, what's been so, um, energizing about this systematic study of the wheel was that you don't have to teach integration. You just have to teach the pathway to liberation from all the elements of the rim that keep you from the hub and all these plateaus and peaks we talk about that can keep you from the plane of possibility where love interconnection and awareness arise. Exquisite, exquisite. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's so many things we could talk about right now. Perhaps this is this is the invitation. Leave on a high, you know. Um, uh, I think I think we've had an exquisite conversation. Um, gen- genuinely, I think like what 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 excites me so much about what you talk about is also um, that this is so accessible for people. You know that um, that that uh, there's yeah. How, how could I say it? Like you know, there's all kinds of meditation practices out there. But what you're doing, I think, is incredibly accessible and incredibly powerful. And um, you know, is it, synergistic between all these different disciplines, and it's going to continue to evolve. And I'm I'm just incredibly inspired hearing you talk about this. Actually, you know, I'm I'm lit up myself at the moment about what's happening in the world. Not just because I have a new a new uh, daughter, but just because it's so palpable now, the the kind of, in a way, that it feels like we're going in the opposite direction of creating integration in the world at the moment. You know, it's like yeah. there's a kind of yeah. polarization and some people say there, you know, that's maybe needed. There's a breaking, there's a kind of um, evolutionary tension in that. But when I, this, this idea of, of um, consciousness and linkages and integration um, feels like it could be at the heart of, of like, uh, you know, how we can begin to uh, have love and skillful means, spontaneous skillful means proliferate through the world. So Absolutely. Inspired. Exactly. Yay. I mean, I feel so connected with you, Joel, about this. And I, the thing about pervasive leadership is that all we need to do to be responsible is, you know, feel it share it and really join together about it. It's, it's about this um, synergy uh, across all humanity. I think we can do it. We is an integrated identity that allows us to say, we support one, one another. <laughs> you didn't go wild with the MWs, but you know, because this is the positive thing. And for Ismay and for, there's a little boy, Max, who was eight years old, who came to our last conference you know, we owe it to them. We owe it to them to simply transform the way we've defined the self. Let integration be the heart of what the self is as a me plus we equals we, and then move in ways that are very natural because they're going to come from the skillful place of awareness. It's awakening the mind to the truth by 
getting away from the culturally um, uh, placed untruths um, that we don't need anymore. We just don't need them. And that's the positive way we can go forward. And it's very exciting. It's great to be here with you to, to explore these ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I'm touched. I'm, I'm touched. Thank you, Dan. Um, and of course you're going to be in the neuroscience of change and, uh, go more into detail about the wheel of awareness itself and how to work with that, how to apply that with others. So, um, yeah, um, I'm really excited about you, you being in this program and, and, um, you know, my wish is just that we, we are able to have another dialogue in, in some time, you know, some months from now, but like, I'd love to keep sharing your ideas with our community because I'm passionate about them going out and touching the lives of others. So uh, I hope we get to speak again and just thank you for the way you shared yourself today. I'm, 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 I'm deeply inspired. Well, me too. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be here with you and I really feel very honored to spend the time with you. Cool. Actually, just tell us the, the, the URL of your website again as well. I'd love to know. Yeah, it's uh, drdansiegel.com. Uh, so D-R-D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L.com. And then there's all sorts of resources there and ways to explore interpersonal neurobiology in more depth. Here we are again. It's the other side of a Coaches Rising podcast. You are in this territory i wanted to say unknown territory but that 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 doesn't speak highly of our podcast so here you are i want to just give you 30 seconds heads up about the neuroscience of change uh dan siegel is going to be teaching in it as i mentioned earlier uh he's going to be teaching all about uh let me see just give me back up here highly prepared he's going to be teaching two sessions on presence and well-being uh, and he's also going to be teaching about how you can apply the wheel of awareness in coaching. Also, we've got people like Rick Hansen teaching, Shinzen Young, Anne Betts, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Amanda Blake, Richard Bayatsis. It's a really incredible lineup. We've had over 320 coaches sign up already. And I hope you're inspired to come and join us. It's all about how do you apply the latest thinking from neuroscience in your coaching. All right, so if you want to come and join us for that, you can find out more by heading to coachesrising.com forward slash neuroscience of change. See you next time.